a little bit about um, Father's Day. I know you're going through a series right now on spiritual gifts, um, which is, um, I thought just, uh, I love, I love the, the, the theme that you have, everybody plays. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit uh, different. I'm going to talk about spiritual fruit, not spiritual gifts, but, you know, close enough, first name is the same, spiritual. Um, and, um, and I will say that, um, like, when I think about some of these things, I, I know we've got some Biola folks here, and, you know, I, I indulge because you may hear stories that you've heard before. Um, my dear wife, Paula, back there, whenever I, like, tell a story for the umpteenth time, she kind of rolls her eyes a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to probably tell some stories you might have heard, and that's okay. I mean, if you go to a Billy Joel concert, right, and he starts playing Piano Man, you don't go, it's like, play something new. I've heard that before. Like, like so, no, just anyway. I told that to Paula. She says, well, you're no Billy Joel. Um, yeah, so, so I, yeah, I'm going to do a little bit of an audible and talk about spiritual fruit this morning. And, 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 and gifts are different. God bestows spiritual gifts upon us according to what he feels like we need. Um, he, 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 he apportions them to us. There are lots of spiritual gifts. You're talking about them during your time together. There are various lists. I've, I've seen seven, I've seen nine, I've seen 12, I've seen 22. So it all depends on what list you have going through God's word. But spiritual gifts are in abundance. And, and uh, as the writer of Romans says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. But the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, fruit is singular, fruit of the Spirit, is something that we can't opt out of. We can't maybe get it or not get it as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enables us to bear fruit. And fruit is what should distinguish us as followers of Jesus, as Christians in the world today. And have you noticed lately that there are seems to be uh, a short supply in the church sometimes of how we are being distinguished this way. And sometimes it seems like we are indistinguishable from others because in many, like the, the, the fruit is not apparent. And you know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And I, um, I was so appreciative to hear Dan here today, Dan filled with compassion, what a wonderful story that is. There's, the fruit of the Spirit is, is evident in, in his life. But I'm seeing um, more and more with the, with, the, with the rancor and the vitriol that sometimes Christians are not demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. And um, sometimes that's true in me as well. We could talk about each dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like to talk specifically about one particular dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. That is the fruit of kindness. Um, Mandy prayed a few minutes ago. She said, God, you are so kind. And the God that is kind manifests in us the spirit of kindness that we have to live out. And tucked in Scripture, there are all kinds of stories about the profound kindness um, I, I did a series this past week at Mount Hermon on the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is filled with these stories of kindness with Naomi and Boaz and Ruth. Today I'm going to talk about of a different story. There's this wonderful but often overlooked story in the book of 2 Samuel. It's about David the king. And I know when we think about David the king, we often think about like the, the, this outdoorsman, this rugged man, this, this um, you can see a little thing of him in, 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 in Florence, you know, that, you know, I only put the top part, anyway, that's another story, um, you know, but, but, you know, he's like, he's a, he's a poet, he's a harpist, he can 
slay a, slay a giant. He can tend sheep. He is the most interesting man in the world. Um, I don't know if you can say that about the Dosekis man, but you can say it about David, right? He is, he is like, there's everything about him, but an often overlooked dimension about David is this gentle, tender kindness in his life, and nowhere is that seen more than in the book of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9. Let me give you a little bit of context uh, before we get there. You remember prior to David being king, Saul was the king. And it wasn't a, a good season for Saul being king because he started off great, but slowly he began this downward spiral. And, um, and he got to know David. David would play the harp for him. David would sing to him. David would talk about poetry with him. And, and Saul had this like passive aggressive nature to him. At one point he was like praising David. The next point he was like, like throwing this spear David's way. And um, he, 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 he was this egomaniac, this narcissistic leader that more and more grew, self, uh, grew insecure in who he was. And so when they, when they sang that little ditty, I don't know if you can still say ditty, but they sang that little ditty, it said, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. This, this rage would, like, would well up within Saul because he was so paranoid that this shepherd boy that was gaining more and more attention would one day dethrone him, and sure enough, Saul's leadership came to an end in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And when it comes to an end, David is elevated to be the king. Now, back in the day when, when the old king was deposed of and the new king comes in, um, the, the, at the least, the new king would completely ignore anybody or any family member of the previous king, but at, at, the, at the most, they, they, they might even like completely wipe out any remnant of that king, so there was absolutely no threat left. And this is where we, we pick up the story, um, because if anyone should have been afraid of King David, it was this poor boy who was the son of Jonathan, and Jonathan, as you know, was the son of Saul. And this boy's name was Mephibosheth. It's kind of a hard name to say. It has three H's, H's in it. And um, this, um, any day now, we're expecting our first grandchild. So excited. And we, they don't know the gender, and we don't know the gender. They know the name. We don't know the name. We don't think his name is going to be Mephibosheth. That's our guess. Um, but it could be a Bible name. I don't know, but it's probably not going to be that one. But we'll find out imminently. Um, so this this son of John, this grandson of Saul, is about 100 miles away from where David's palace is, and, and he is hiding for his life. So let's pick up the story there from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 to 11. And one day David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? There's that word. Ziba, who was a steward of King Saul, answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, King David asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir. So David had him brought to him. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, the boy replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, 
and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for this crippled young man, right? And bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So you get the story. Here's a grandson of King Saul, right? Who's lame in both feet, who is fearing what David might one day do to him. But remember, David, who wrote many of the Psalms, wrote this one Psalm that says, how precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. And the, and the psalmist who writes about God's loving kindness knows that he can't be serious about God's loving kindness unless he's embodying the characteristics of God and living a life of kindness as well. And so he wants to live out God's kindness, his loving kindness, his hased, as the Hebrew word is, God's grace. And he thought, of anybody, if I'm going to live out God's grace, why don't I do it to the one who is the least likely to think that he's going to be a recipient of my grace? You know, David could have had anybody at his table, right? Other rulers and dignitaries, his family. But he opens up his table to this crippled young man named Mephibosheth who is hiding a hundred miles away and he's brought into the courts of King David. And then this is a, a, a deeply moving scene as, as this, 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 this disabled orphan with, I don't know if he came in on crutches or if he was limping as he came in or if he, if he was carried into the courts, but he comes into the courts and he's standing there, twisted legs crookedly anxious, obviously, as he waits the word of the most powerful man in the land. He has no idea what word might come. And what does he hear? He hears these words. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. You'll always eat at my table. Mephibosheth was the most unlikely one to be the recipients of David's kindness, David's grace, David's hased. After all, his grandfather was public enemy number one of David, the one that wanted to kill him, the one who was so, so um, twisted and contorted in his own ego and despised the fact that David was going to step in as king. And, um, and then Jonathan, who is Mephibosheth's father, is, 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 is long gone. And, and Saul loathed, he loathed David. And so everything about this boy was so unlikely. An orphanous father was dead. A grandfather was the, 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 the premier enemy of, of David. He was disabled, right? He was lame in both legs. Um, and so it, it made no sense. And so when he comes into David's throne room, he, he bows down before him unworthily. He said, why would you notice this dead dog like me? Talking about himself, right? And again, as I said, David had every right to open up his table, to nobility, to family, to friends, but he showed grace to the least likely, the grandson of his enemy, this parentless young man, palsied legs, hiding from the king. And David invites this disabled boy to sit at the royal table. 
And it says that not just one meal, it says, but you can come to my table every meal of every day of the year. Friends, this is grace. When, when this feeble, frail foe of David comes into his kingdom, David shows him profound kindness. Well, how do we live lives of profound kindness in this day and age? And what lessons do we learn from the story? You know, it's easy to be kind to the, to the barista, right? When, when he gets your latte right at Starbucks. It's easy to be kind to members of your family when you're getting along. It's easy to be kind in your own safe echo chambers. But it's a lot more difficult to be kind um, to those who maybe don't look like us and vote like us and believe like us and think like us. That's where kindness is so hard. Kindness is hard when, when there are tensions in our friendships and tensions in our, in our families or with neighbors or with colleagues. Kindness is much more difficult with those with whom you, you, you deeply disagree. But grace and kindness, is, is, it's, this, it's this virtue that's it's rooted in Scripture and forged on, on, on deep theology and has been lived out by the people of God for centuries now, and I distinguish between kindness and niceness, right? Like, niceness is like this lame, weak, anemic word, but, but kindness is this powerful, radical, revolutionary word. We don't just do kindness in this, like, in this, like, haphazard way. It is this profound, radical way of living. You look through all scriptures, and you find the word kind, kindness, loving kindness, kind-heartedness, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout God's word. You can't find the word nice in scripture, or niceness. It's not anywhere, at least in the Bible translations that I've looked at. So kindness isn't just the thing you do in this, in this Nike-esque kind of way. We, 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 we love kindness, we live kindness. That passage in Micah 6, 8, right? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justice and to love kindness. Sometimes we say love mercy. It really means to love kindness and to walk humbly with you, God. And you think of that, of that tripartite of those three, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. It seems like loving kindness is the easiest of the three to do. But I actually think it's the hardest of the three to do. It's easy with those that are our type. But what about those that you've ignored or avoided or judged or condemned or those who have gotten on your last nerve? What about being kind to them? And, and kindness isn't just, this, um, isn't just this random act. You know, the good random acts of kindness, I'm all about them. Like random acts, like you buy a dessert for some stranger in the restaurant, you don't tell them who did it. You take out your elderly neighbor's trash. You tell your friend she has spinach in her teeth. Whatever that, that random act of kindness is, like do it, do those random acts of kindness. But kindness is more than that. And I like, like random acts of kindness. I'm at Biola University. And like when students are like walking down the sidewalk, I do my best to introduce myself, check how they're doing, you know, give them a high five or a fist bump or something. One student um, not long ago had a, a Facebook posting on this and it said, today, DBC, president of Biola, put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers though. This dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm a B-OK. I'm struggling, but I can do it. Just saying. 
Like, what are they? I don't know what he's just saying. Like, read that and I think, like, this dog's aroma smells like flowers. I don't know which smell I had, but, um, but, but kindness isn't, isn't a random act. It's a, it's, a, it's a radical life. It is this countercultural way of living because God's call on our lives demands of us that we be kind, whether we're accepted or not. It's Father's Day, and when I was growing up, I had a, had a front row seat on this kind of life, watching my own father. My father um, grew up on this small farm outside of Montreal in Quebec, Canada, and had a rather you know, uneventful life until Jesus got a hold of him at the age of 16. And this powerful time in his life when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he suddenly began to realize that the power of the Spirit in my life is something that, that is extraordinary for the sake of the gospel. My father became a preacher. He's a small, small-framed Canadian preacher, and, 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 and he, could, he could pray with this, this deep sense of piety in the best sense of the word. As the Spirit came over, I, when, I was, when, he, when I was a boy, I could stand outside his study in our home, and I could cut my ear against the door. And I could hear him praying in the Spirit, praying out loud. He's praying like, Master, 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 referring to God's role in his life, that he was the servant, God was the master. That's just the way it was going to be. And when he, was, uh, when he was out among people, I would watch as, as the, kind of the, the, the spirit would well up within him. And he would, he would make himself in front of somebody just like, like want to reach out in a way that for me as a young boy was like profoundly awkward. Profoundly. He would like get out and like hug the Islamic gas station attendant that was putting oil in his car. And I would like slouch down in the backseat of that Pontiac Bonneville. Back when they had Pontiac Bonnevilles, right? Um, he, would, he would grasp the hands of the Armenian cobbler where he was getting his shoes fixed and said, sir, may I pray for you? And this, this man with gnarly hands and shoe polish on his fingers would grasp my father's hands and together they'd pray across that counter. And I'd be praying too at the door that no one come in, right? And see them praying with each other. So awkward for me. And one time, as our family well knows, um, the story was he, 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 he walked into... The, the furniture shop in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he would buy furniture, and, and Reuben was there. Reuben was a Jewish furniture merchant. And he walked up to Reuben, and I, I just knew it was coming. He had that, that Holy Spirit thing, and then he, like, he, would, he grabbed Reuben's face by the hand, and he said, Reuben, I love you. <laughs> and I wanted to like, crawl under a desk or run out of the store, those, like, and, and over and over again, he would do that, and he just did it so naturally. And he did it when he was like, people would like, sometimes they thought it was nice of him to do that, or, and sometimes they just rejected it. And sometimes, like, he, you know, they, they didn't know what to say, or they'd give him the cold shoulder, or rude comment, or, or walk away, but didn't matter. He was like undaunted because he's just, this is what he does. Years later, I, was, I spent a, a year in Bangladesh. Um, doing some research there. My father came through for, uh, for a few days, and, and I remember when he was there, we went for a walk this one morning. And he began to talk to me. We've had plenty of conversations, my father and I. And uh, he said, there's this, uh, Barry, there's this one verse uh, in Matthew chapter 10 that I can't get out of my mind. I said, well, what is it? I know that popular one, Matthew chapter 10, if anyone's been a disciple, you pick your cross and follow me. But it's this verse. 
He said, it's where Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And I remember that um, moment in my life um, when he said that. He said, he said, I don't fully understand what Jesus meant in that passage. But this I do understand. That whoever God places in my path to that person, I am going to make myself receivable. For how will they receive the love of Christ? How will they receive the grace of God unless they receive me first? And it was that, that moment on that walk through the fetid streets of Bangladesh with, with rickshaw wallas and people scourging through like dumpsters for food and, and, and beggars on the streets all around us as all that was happening. I'm, all, I'm thinking about this and, and my life flashes before my eyes and I think of hugging the Islamic gas station attendant and praying with the Armenian cobbler at the store and holding Reuben's face in his hands and saying, Reuben, I love you, that my father wasn't being weird. He was being receivable. My father said to me then, he said, Jesus never said you were going to be received. He simply said, you make yourself receivable. You know, friends here at Southlands, you're not kind uh, in order to be thanked. You're kind in order to be obedient. And you can do this. You can unleash that power of kindness uh, in your life that it's risky and it's hard and it's countercultural. But if you think kindness is about your being accepted, then you've got a distorted view of the understanding of kindness in God's word. Kindness is not about being accepted. It's about living into the life of a radical disciple that Jesus has called you to do. That's why. That's why that, that, that student who talked about this dog's aroma smells like flowers, though, he kind of theologically had it right in a weird way, right? Because Paul says you are the aroma of Christ. To some, you're the smell of life. To others, you're the smell of death. So Paul says. And you just got to keep on smelling like Jesus. This is what we're called to do. It doesn't matter how people perceive the Jesus fragrance coming out of you. You just got to keep on living that way. Kindness is on the short list of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not optional. When we, when we inhale the Spirit, we exhale kindness. I think more and more we need to be distinguished as a people of God of, of living this way. If you go to Peabody, Massachusetts right now, you could go to this little graveside, kind of nondescript marker on the ground. And there you see uh, Reverend Hugh McLeod Corey, 1922 to 1998. Is it eight? Yeah. Um, next week uh, would have been the 100th birthday of my father. So I, I, I'm thinking about this, this now, about how this farm boy, Bedford, Quebec, made a decision to follow Jesus when he was 16. The Holy Spirit began to work on his life. And this kid who probably, you know, was living just an ordinary life, suddenly took on this extraordinary dimension when the Spirit came over him. And, and he lived this life of being receivable, taking with profound seriousness the words of Christ, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I am so far from reaching this 
in my own life, but I want to do this more and more. Actually, when it comes to grand, my grandparent, Paul and I are going to become grandparents. We're actually hoping that maybe a week from tomorrow, when it's my father's 100th birthday, the baby comes then. But we have no control of our daughter-in-law. Uh, we can't say hurry up or slow down. So, you know, we'll just, we'll just, sit, and, we'll just sit and wait. You know, at Biola University, five, five and a half thousand students there. This, this rising generation of Jesus followers, these little Christs, as C.S. Lewis calls them. And it's true of all of you here at Southlands Church as well. You are the people of God. You are these little Christs. You are the ones to make yourself receivable. And what I've told our students and people like Joel Baker has probably heard me tell, tell, say this too many times, but, but, but we live the life of what we call firm center and soft edges. The firm center have a deep commitment. If I had a bumper sticker, that's what it would look like. A deep commitment to, 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 to like living for the truth of what God's word says, not, not like playing fast and loose with scripture, but, but there's truth and there's the authority of God's word and the, the reality of the resurrected Christ. That's like, that's the firm center of what we believe in. We hold that with, with, with great sense of tenacity. But we live our lives with soft edges, with hospitality, with winsomeness, with kindness, with grace, with love, with listening to those whose stories are so different than ours. Listening while wanting to learn, not listening while waiting to respond, and there's a difference. And I, I've been talking a lot about this idea of firm center, soft edges, and I do believe that this is the antidote to so much that's wrong in our world today. Sometimes those who are living too much with like a firm center and hard edges, and they wrap themselves with razor wire and they go after the other side, and everybody's the enemy if, it doesn't, if, they, if they don't like, think like them and believe like them. And that's not what God has called us to. On the other hand, you can't have like soft edges in this spongy center. Whatever is right for you is right for you, and whatever is right for you is right for you. Just like live and let live in this relativistic kind of way. It's not one or the other. It's both of them together with equal weight in our lives. That firm center, soft edges. It's not my bumper sticker language. This is the gospel. Jesus came full of truth, firm center, and full of grace, soft edges. Love the Lord your heart, God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, firm center. Love your neighbor as yourself, soft edges. Be wise as serpents, firm center. Be gentle as doves, soft edges. Um, always be prepared to, to declare the hope that you have with reason, firm center, but do so with gentleness and respect. You know, Jesus said, um, you have heard to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So he has those two groups, right? He has your, your, your neighbor and your enemy. And enemy is not just the one that we combat with. I would say what Jesus meant is your neighbor are those you're in community with, and your enemy are those you're not in community with. And Jesus says, you love them and you pray for them. Two verbs there. And sometimes as Christians, we love and we don't, but we don't pray, or we pray but we don't love. And by that, what I mean is like, if you, if you love but you don't pray for your enemy, you might have relationship with them, but you have no desire for the, the gospel to transform their lives. Or if you pray but you don't love, that means you're trying to love them from a distance and that's impossible because love demands proximity. Are you in relationship with those who are outside of your community? This is what the gospel calls us to. This is what it means to live this life of, of radical, kindness. Jesus came full of 
truth from center and full of grace, so I'm not half of each or one or the other. And my hope is that Christians are seen as being gracious in their spirit, while also solid in their convictions, known far more for what we are for than what we are against. My hope is for people of faith to be known to love their enemies and pray for those who make life difficult for them. And again, loving demands proximity. My hope is that you'll open your lives and even open your tables as David did for Mephibosheth to those most unlikely dinner guests. Because I believe the greatest influence lies ahead for those of us as followers of Jesus when we walk that cross-shaped gospel, the vertical, the horizontal, in this increasingly skeptical society that we're in. And you can't love by like posting some disembodied tweet from a distance. Love demands relationships. And this is your challenge, living from a biblically-centered core that spills out in profound kindness, the truth that Jesus is Lord of all and the grace that invites people in. My friend Brian Loritz on the board at Biola, one of our graduates said this. He said, we've tried legalism and that has proven inept and unattractive. The only thing that works is a life that embodies grace and truth lived out in relationship with others. Let me end uh, with this. And, and that is when you get to the book of Romans chapter two, that chapter starts off with a few verses about how unfortunate it is that we become so judgmental as Christians. And then by the time you get to verse four, it says God's kindness leads to repentance. It's not my judgment that leads to repentance. It's not my um, harsh comments that lead to repentance. It's not the, the, the way in which I, I, I'm trying to like fight everything as a battle that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness through me that leads to repentance. Your kindness may be accepted and your kindness may be rejected. But I can guarantee you this, your kindness when it comes from a life in Christ towards others, especially those who are not in your echo chamber, your kindness will never be forgotten because that kindness plants a seed in somebody's life that, that, that I believe will germinate one day, maybe long after you're on the scene. Friends, we can't, we can't love well with a bullhorn. Kindness is this Holy Spirit breathe thing within us that has the power to change people more than you can imagine. It can break down these impenetrable walls. It, it can be at the heart of racial reconciliation. It can restore relationships long thought to be unsalvageable. Kindness can empower servant leaders to break stalemates. It can bring together natures, na nations. And, and, I, and I believe that kindness can point people to Jesus. And this is what we do. For, for generations, God's people have been doing that way. Feeding the poor, subverting racism, restoring the sick, educating the illiterate, sheltering the homeless, caring for the marginalized. This is the way we live. We cannot stop living this way. So, so don't sell kindness short. When I was back in, in Boston, I worked at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and Adoniram Judson Gordon, A.J. Gordon, as he was known, pastor back in the 1800s, uh, once said this, that our task is not to bring all the world to Christ. Our task unquestionably is to bring Christ to all the world. 
kindness calls us off of our soapboxes, off of our social media platforms and into the cities and into the neighborhoods and into our friends' homes and into communities where people need to see the kindness of God through us. And it's God's kindness through us that leads to repentance. So make yourself receivable as a gesture of grace because you received it first. And this thing about kindness is not ultimately about some act that you live, but it's about your receiving the grace of God as the most profound act of kindness in history. And it is the cross. Sometimes we think of the cross as this rugged, bloody symbol, but it's the cross of Jesus Christ that is the most kind, hospitable moment in, in all of history. When Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves out of his grace for us. So I'm just saying, like, if we've been saved by grace, then live a life of graciousness. Like, pour it out. It doesn't matter if people accept you or don't accept you. Just live it in whatever you do and don't live your life to be thanked. Live your life to be receivable and to be obedient. And uh, it reminds me that uh, in some ways, uh, we are all the Mephibosheths, aren't we? These crippled, broken people standing before the throne of God. And, and, and David says to Mephibosheth, you come and eat at my table like one of my sons every day, all day long. And later he wrote in the 23rd Psalm, like you, you can go sit at the table in the presence of your enemies. I just want you to know that um, despite your baggage and despite your past and despite your shortcomings and, and fears, we're, we're the ones who have heard those words from Christ. You come and sit at my table and you dine with me. If anyone stands at the door and knocks, I will open the door and come into them and you can, and, and I'll eat with you. That's what he's saying. Jesus is basically saying, like to supper with him, supper is as much a verb as it is a noun. If you invite me to supper for a meal, I'll invite you to supper with me for the rest of your lives and for all of eternity. So this is what's happening even in the Mephibosheth story. We're the ones who hear those words, come my daughters and sons to sit at the table as undeserving as you are. And maybe this is what you need to hear today, that there's a place for you at the table of God's kindness that you don't deserve, but the banquet is spread for you. So we live out profound kindness in our lives because of the kindness that God demonstrated to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. So therefore, as God's chosen people, redeemed by his grace, God's word exhorts us. Holy and dear brothers and sisters, clothe yourselves in kindness. So Father, we, um, we receive that today. Uh, your word. We are your chosen people. We are redeemed by your grace. So may we, as your holy and dearly loved people, may we clothe ourselves, as your word says, in kindness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.